0: The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms, fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed
1: penetrators.
0: Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it
1: was truly bullets flying from every angle that that you could see. I
0: open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes.
1: There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One one pilot on the controls. The other pilot was using his M4 to engage single man targets on the
0: ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck. Today I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Misty Cantwell, who's the 2nd Regimental Tactical Officer here at West Point and an MP by training. Misty, welcome to The Spear. Thank you. How did you wind up in the Army?
1: Uh, So this one day in high school, uh, we went to the University of South Florida for science fair. I remember this vividly. And there were all these people rappelling off of the science center. And I thought, that looks like the most fun ever. And they loaded me up with propaganda. And somehow I totally missed that they were ROTC cadets. And I realized that there was this place called West Point. You could go to school for free. And I thought, this is brilliant. You get to play soldier. And my parents won't guilt me for the cost of college. And so somehow I just followed all the directions step by step, and here I am.
0: As part of your West Point experience, you had to branch. What did you branch?
1: So I branched military police. It was really the only option, in my opinion, for me. Uh, I was lucky enough to do military police for CTLT. Um, So I got to shadow the branch, you know, for 30 days, kind of live that life. We were in the field doing what we used to call RTEPs which i don't really remember what it stands for but it was really field exercises you know it's kind of like battle drills and basic soldier skills um and the they were they were designated by mos so everybody would kind of go out and do their own specific training um, and so i knew that i wanted to have a platoon I knew that i wanted to be what i would consider quote unquote a real soldier and there weren't a lot of options back then um, for female cadets, um, if, if that was what you were looking for. So I knew that I couldn't build anything, so engineer was out. MI seemed a bit iffy, like maybe you would get a platoon and maybe you'd be a staff MI officer. It was a great choice. I also like the diversity of the branch, the fact that you can work law enforcement, you can work criminal investigations, you can work corrections, and then really my, my true passion would be the field craft um, and that combat support role.
0: So this is all pre-9-11.
1: Correct. Yeah. So I uh, showed up at West Point in 1998. I came from a totally civilian background, like no real military experience in my family. Uh, My mom made me watch Private Benjamin in order to prepare myself for Beast of Barracks. And so I think they thought I was crazy. And I think the only thing that kept my parents positive about the whole potential experience was the fact that i could leave at, at any time uh quote unquote uh, if i wasn't happy if i didn't like it and so so yeah so 1998 i showed up first year the week after ring weekend was 9-11 prior to that you know we'd all kind of hoped to get to the balkans that was like the only like operational uh assignment going uh and then all of a sudden life changed
0: being an MP in the post nine eleven world, right? It's 2002, you're commissioned. What was your training pipeline?
1: Yes, yeah, so we graduated uh, in June 2002, went to the, or the basic course. I graduated in November and showed up. My platoon as a military police officer was still working the road. So they were doing law and order. They were on shifts. Everybody was kind of everywhere. Clearly force protection was through the roof at the time um, still. And so it took me at least 30 days to like meet literally my platoon, like to see everyone. I went to Fort Stewart for my first duty station and half of the division was already forward in Kuwait at the time. Uh, MPs are a little bit different. We don't necessarily deploy with the division. We deploy as individual companies. Um, So we got the word relatively late, probably December um, that we were gonna join a lot of the forces already building up in Kuwait. So we did about 30 days of field training. It was the first time I saw my platoon that we were able to do any sort of individual, let alone collective training, and honestly washed the trucks and drove them ourselves to the port. So in January, we loaded everything up. By February, we were sitting in Kuwait waiting for the war to start, and we had no equipment. So they didn't really know what to do with us at first, and they started to give us prepo. So we had Walmart walkabout radios, like the little handheld camping radios, and we ran convoy uh, security operations all across Kuwait until our equipment came in, um, probably about a week after the war actually started.
0: What was landing in Kuwait like as a young platoon leader, knowing that shortly thereafter you're going into into combat?
1: I think every day, I'm grateful now to have been so naive. I don't really know, like I don't I don't really recall being like scared. I don't even recall being concerned about whether or not I was prepared, which now really seems ridiculous to me. I think I felt like we had gone through all the initial training. I was confident in my platoon. I had a an experienced platoon sergeant whom I got along well with, uh, and we did have the opportunity in Kuwait to redo ranges to work through just platoon level kind of operations in the open desert uh, and to really kind of do that storming, norming, and forming as a team. But I do remember we landed and we went to the talk and my commander called the lieutenants in. There were four of us. Uh, We were all brand new lieutenants. And he was like, we're going to war in seven days. And I remember thinking, wait, us? Like us? Like this? All right then. Um, so I mean, that was when you know things started to get real, um, but it wasn't until the scuds started coming in that things got really real. I don't think. I remember distinctly throwing on the mop suit when the sirens went off, <coughs> like like, oh, there's like people are firing at us, um, and I think even then, I don't think I had an appreciation for what we were going to face.
0: You mentioned your platoon sergeant. had he or she seen? combat before in Desert Storm or the Balkans or?
1: So good old Sergeant First Class Ray Marciano uh, was an amazing American. I don't think he had combat experience in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, although he had been in and around the vicinity. So I'm sure he had combat patch. Um, I'm sure that he had spent some time in the desert um, but he had mainly a lot of time doing nuke security and other static site security across europe so very uh, familiar with like a gap scenarios and kind of all of the pccs and pcis that go into preparing for combat operations but i definitely looked to him for that tactical level knowledge and then like just the care and feeding of the platoon uh, at that point i I didn't even understand my additional duties, let alone how to adequately account for and supply the team. Um, So he he really taught me everything that I know.
0: The war kicks off. You're still in Kuwait using your Walmart radios. Your equipment shows up. What was the marching order that you received?
1: So the war kicked off and we continued. Uh, doing the convoy operations uh, while trying to like unpack our stuff and then recover it. There was a lot of rust and water like damage just from the heat and humidity and everything from transport. Um, So it took us probably a week or two to kind of refit, reset, work the pack out plans for the trucks, kind of get the maintenance up and running. I don't think you you can appreciate the impact of the timeline through which the trucks and the weapons like just sat like they just sat so it must have been three months or so from the time we pack them out to the time we unpack them so to try and get them up and ready again was challenging in the meantime we were doing what i would call con air missions um, and that's when we would dispatch an mp team, just three soldiers or an MP squad, which is nine to 10 soldiers uh, north on aircraft to pick up detainees and escort them to different theater facilities, trying to account for those soldiers and track them with no real communication. Keep in mind, this was well before, you know, anybody really used Blue Force Tracker or, you know, we had legitimate communications below maybe the company or platoon level and an MP organization. So, very challenging to try and do that battle tracking and ensure that the platoon had resources. Everybody was fighting for resources. You would have to guard your stuff at the port to make sure people weren't stealing pieces and parts, to make sure that they weren't repainting bumper numbers, to make sure that they weren't breaking into conics because everybody just wanted to make sure that their platoon, that their soldiers were adequately supplied. Um, food at that point even was a challenge. The logistical push. The focus was on the fuel and the food and the water going north and rightly so in support of, you know, those initial echelons into Iraq. Uh, And so back in Kuwait, we were just trying to figure out like how to ration and make sure that we had just basic daily supplies in addition to whatever, you know, kind of number of days of supplies we were supposed to stockpile uh, in order to make our own movement.
0: When you crossed the border, what was going through your head?
1: Oh my god, so this is a funny story. We literally stop at the last CSC, the Convoy Support Center, in Kuwait. And we'd been there several times running security missions. Um, so we were familiar with the route. There was literally a fence, like chain-link fence at this point. We weren't cutting through the berms. Like, we were just doing highway movements. I had about 40 map sheets stacked together because... <laughs> I don't know. That's what we had. We didn't have Blue Force Tracker. Like, you just literally had giant map sheets. And we drive just past the chain link fence and there's Iraqi children there. They're all waving, cheering. Everyone is, like, so happy to see us. We have the windows down. We had, like, our tops off. Like, we probably didn't look like a very professional force. But the combat, I mean, the threat level was relatively low. It was more of an admin move. We're just trying to get north. So the children are swarming the truck. This kid steals my sunglasses off my face. Like he just reaches into the truck and he takes my sunglasses. And my driver's like, man, that kid just took your sunglasses. And all I can think is, where am I gonna get sunglasses in Iraq? Like, what do I do now? And then the next thing I know, my driver stops the truck and he's like, get out, get out. I have no idea what's going on. We had a radio in an ammo can, hot-wired into the battery box. was apparently not wired in appropriately. And my truck caught on fire. That was my first two seconds in Iraq. Um, Luckily, my driver put the fire out and we got back in the truck and moved out smartly. But I thought this could be a bad omen.
0: (laughs) When you started getting closer to those forward echelon units, what changed in your mind? What changed in your posture? What did Sergeant First Class Marciano provide guidance on?
1: The entire company moved at once. So for an MP unit, and that's a relatively big serial, there's like 120 to 130 vehicles moving. We have our own maintenance team. We have all our own trailers. But as we progress north, um, you would see more and more burned out hulks. Um, we'd already spent, you know, just in and around Kuwait, like that highway of death from Desert Shield, Desert Storm. I mean, it still exists. We recognized and knew, like right away, even in Kuwait, the threat that we were potentially facing that mobile forces could face uh, in a combat zone. Um, but to see American vehicles now kind of burned out or d- disabled uh, beyond repair, stripped, you know, as we were going north, like, I mean, some of those images will be seared into my memory, like, forever. You know, we knew at this point that the majority of fighting was over. This was pre-IEDs, um, so we were relatively comfortable on our move. But we had witnessed, just like everyone else via CNN, challenges at Larry, Curley, and Mo. You know, that 3rd ID had fought through the clover Cloverleafs and along the highways in and around Baghdad. I would say as we moved north, like, the tone was definitely less excited and more uh, trepidatious. Like, we don't know where exactly we're going. We don't know exactly what our mission set will be. We don't really know if we're prepared, right? Like, our wartime experience thus far has been administrative. Everybody at this point, I think, was pretty quiet and really focused internally. Like, do I have what it takes can I do this? Like, how do I put on my face so the whole world doesn't know that I'm scared um, sort of deal. I think that was, was probably what we faced. It probably took us about three days in total like to push north and to get into Baghdad uh, and refit and then figure out where were we going from there.
0: Once you got into Baghdad, where did you wind up?
1: So we went straight to the green zone. That's where our battalion headquarters was, so central Baghdad. We did not spend time as a unit at Baya, which was a pretty big logistical support hub. That's where, at the time, I think 3rd ID was there as like the main division. The core headquarters um, was probably also there. The green zone was really just starting to become populated, if you will, with some of the major and then projected like enduring headquarters. Um, so we got up there. We met with the battalion. They gave us some initial logistics and like a new map uh, as well as the radio fills uh, and sent us on our way. And so we went due east to a place called Sadr City, which is a very distinct rectangular enclave in eastern Baghdad. And it is named after the political family. Um, And so we didn't know what to expect, but we were going to a place called Camp Marlborough, named rightly so uh, for the cigarette factory. And we were going to be linked in with a 2-2, which is 2nd Squadron, 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment.
0: What was your mission when assigned to
1: 2-2? Our initial mission set was the same as l- literally, I think, everybody else's in Baghdad. force security. So, like, we were given a piece of the perimeter, part of the QRF responsibilities for the FOB itself. And then... Uh, We were given areas of the city to literally patrol. So we would go out in shifts. I remember initially they were like 12-hour shifts and 12-hour shifts of driving in a hot city. Um, It's it's a challenge. We weren't really dismounting much at the time and like walking. We were literally driving around uh, plotting things on maps. You know, building those overlays that the talk needed, trying to build the initial IPB, just trying to under, like get our bearing. So we would go out and look for things like police stations, fire stations, hospitals, schools, like any significant damage potentially to like public works, whether it was the power station or the water treatment facility. I and mean, we're literally just touring around the city as the. So that was like May. April, May timeframe, um, but as the summer progressed, the threat level like continued to get exponentially higher for us, and so our force posture changed. The number of vehicles that had to roll at any given time changed. Uh, and our, I would think, though, that our confidence and our comfort level also began to change. You know, we were much better with radio communications. We were much better with battle tracking, both in the vehicle and back through the company talk. Um, and so those skill sets were honed, fortunately for us, uh, kind of in progression with the threat level. And I'm certain that that saved a lot of the s- soldiers early on in Iraq.
0: As the threat level increased, what sort of threat was it?
1: The initial threat, like to us out on patrol, was usually like pop shots. Nothing really specific at you, like at your vehicles, just rounds in the air. There was an increase in the animosity and kind of the reception that you would get in dealing with locals. When we first got to Baghdad, honestly, we were pooling cash and buying food like on the streets. They had a pizza hot like H-O-T instead of H-U-T. They had a lot of stores. We would stop and buy things like tang and ice and fruit that hadn't been pre-cut. And, you know, just n- nice to have things, things that, you know, to augment the the rations um, that we were eating or the MREs. And uh, very quickly, you know, glass started being put in the food or people, maybe not in my unit, but in units were getting sick from eating whatever they were consuming or from the ice because the water standards are clearly not the same as maybe what we were accustomed to. So those little things, those little indicators were out there. Um, I think it was June or July. I'm not 100% certain, but the uh, EFPs started. Uh, And I remember very distinctly the first one that I responded to. We were out. It was late. It was dark. We were patrolling in our AO, um, but it was also adjacent to the second ACR, like regimental talk. So relatively... You know, brigade-sized talk. They had a lot of enablers. It was the Iraqi War College, if I recall correctly. So a a clear landmark with a lot of meaning to the local populace. And the EFP really ripped into a soft-sided Humvee for second ACR. We were the we heard it. We didn't know what it was, and so we responded. And that was the first time I put a soldier in a body bag. And like those soldiers, and that the ramifications of that, and just trying to think through like okay okay, now what? Zero out the radios, police up the sensitive items, doing the radio calls, like keeping the team focused, providing aid for those who are hurt, like providing security, making sure, you know, we're not secondary targets. Like just trying to think through all of that and yet deal with like, you know, at 21 or 22, like, like, oh, this is real. Like people are getting hurt and dying. Like that night will probably live in my memory very clearly forever.
0: As an MP in an increasingly restive city, were you handling detainees when you were out on patrol or?
1: So, detainees was an interesting debate kind of ongoing all summer, and it was a political debate. I wasn't necessarily the one debating, we were just the ones responding. Uh, I think there was a lot of uncertainty and lack of clarity from when we were going as a force to pivot from the law of war to rule of law and then who was really in charge and what did that mean and so law of war is actually relatively simple you know you're you you have predefined enemy um you the threshold for evidence for the collection for the administrative side is relatively low and mps are very well trained on what that means and how you echelon them back to the appropriate holding facilities for somebody else to adjudicate but making that transition to rule of law and having to work by with and through the capturing unit and trying to almost treat it like like a correctional problem versus a detention problem was a just a new challenge right like we didn't necessarily have the forms we didn't necessarily have the means to like make copies of forms there certainly wasn't the opportunity to be like oh hey guys let's have a training session on how to fill out the paperwork like everyone is trying to figure this out as we go on uh, different units had different roe um so trying to understand like whose detainees are treated in which manner um and then How are we going to do that with our partner units, whether it's the Iraqi police or the Iraqi army? So there's just a lot of, I think, complexity associated with detention operations. I would say a couple of things, like one, there were not a lot of female soldiers out doing tactical things like tactical mission sets there were plenty of medics but the medics were needed to do medical things there were plenty of cooks but cooks needed to do cook things so the military police by and large was the pool of female soldiers to go out and augment the maneuver forces order to do gender specific searches you know we tried to be very cognizant of the cultural nuances and the cultural sensitivities associated with that Um, so trying to manage that and then break up our own combat teams which is like forbidden in a maneuver world, but for us to then do uh, was a challenge Keeping accountability, making sure that those soldiers were integrated, properly secured, properly resourced was often a challenge um, because they weren't always treated as a valued member of the team. Trying to encourage everyone, whether it was our U.S. forces or the Iraqi forces, to treat people with dignity and respect, um, given the situation. And by that point, the losses that both sides have taken um, and the what we didn't really understand at the time, the civil dis- discourse that was underway, like that was a very hard level of conversation and understanding to to have and to be cognizant of going into different situations, um, whether it was at the police stations or at different FOBs or in support of different combat operations.
0: After that first EFP went off, what changed?
1: I mean, that was definitely a wake-up call, right? I was grateful we had up-armored trucks. So at the time, we didn't know how powerful the EFPs would get. Um, But putting a soldier, a U.S. soldier, like in a body bag, like you're not prepared for that. Like you cannot ever be prepared for that. But to look at my soldiers and worry about, sorry, to worry about them being put in a body bag, like that was, that weighed on my mind like every day that we went out on patrol like I think that was probably the first time that was pre any like legitimate injuries like combat injuries in the company or in my platoon and so that was the first time I realized like people are going to die like that hit home for me on on that day and to see them and the impact and then to recognize that stress and that like emotional toll on my soldiers, you know, was another thing that we started to grapple with. OIF was really where we started to bring in like the combat stress teams and counselors and we learned slowly over the year that we needed to be debriefed and not just debrief from an intelligence perspective, but, you know, from a psychological perspective, like how is everybody dealing with this? You know, you, you don't realize as you're going through it necessarily, the stress of that fear and that, that sense of responsibility for the lives of your soldiers. And so that, to me, that, that's what that EFP meant, that this is real. And I need to take every mission every day as a like, literal threat, like it's life or death. Like every movement can be life or death now.
0: As a young leader, you've experienced this EFP, you've responded, you've recognized your roles and responsibilities. How did you handle that?
1: you come home and people like will ask you all the time and this is the thing that used to drive me crazy like how many people have you killed like I don't want a patch for that man I don't want congratulations for killing people and that's not really the question you should ever ask anybody like Um and I, I think you know it wasn't a matter of how many people did I kill it's how many people did you lose and whether you lost them physically in battle or you lost them years after the fact because of what you know we went through like don't know how you personally will handle combat right until it starts to happen and you don't know how your team is going to handle it and so i mean you can't you can't train that's the one element of training that you can't train for right i mean i suppose there are training accidents um and things but as a young lieutenant like you can't prepare for that you just have to trust in the training that you've received and you have to trust in your team and you have to trust in the system that will be there to support you whatever happens and you also just have to know that you are going to have to make tough choices or you're going to be sent on missions or you're going to send people on missions that come at a cost, and that's what we all signed up to do. Um, but I don't think you can appreciate that uh, until probably years after the fact and until maybe you have some degree of maturity. Um, because I think even my second you know, or third deployment, you know, I didn't necessarily appreciate any of this in, f- in totality.
0: Misty, the events you covered today are 19, almost 20 years in the past. You you were commissioned 20 years ago. What does Lieutenant Colonel Cantwell say? Or, you know, what do you say to to young cadet Cantwell or or, or to second lieutenant Cantwell?
1: Uh, You know, I actually had the opportunity to work through BEAST this summer and observe kind of the array of summer training. And uh, in retrospect now, like, My experience in Baghdad and my preparation really started with Buckner, and I did Buckner twice once as a yuck and once as a platoon leader.
0: What's Buckner for those of us that aren't West Pointers?
1: CFT. I think it's CFT now, that's what you guys call it. Cadet field training. Yes, sorry. Okay. Sorry. Um, Yes, so um, those basic soldier skill sets and that muscle memory that you're building as a cadet uh, is instrumental to you know the, what you will be doing Agnostic to the branch you pick going forward. And so, taking these things seriously, becoming a master of your craft, and then trusting and learning from your non commissioned officers are probably the greatest takeaways. You have to have a degree of humility when you take your platoon, and you might be the leader, but it's going to take the entire team to work collectively, particularly in a combat environment. Um, And you guys will all just need to learn from one another so what you learn and and experience here um, is actually very helpful um, and and will build that foundation for you going forward
0: misty i want to thank you for your time today and for being on the spear
1: thank you pleasure
0: thank you for listening to this episode of the spear the spear is produced by the modern war institute at west point